Jesus' existence didn't begin with his birth or conception, but pre-existed creation, as made by him and for him. Jesus was both God and God himself. That such a divine person exists is taught throughout Scripture, starting in Genesis. The plurality within the Godhead made it possible for God to be intrinsically a God of love. Creation Ministries International sends all our listeners best Christmas wishes, but why should a creationist even care? In Jesus, God took on a human nature, so he could die for our sins as a fellow human, taking the penalty we deserve for our sins. In fact, this was planned from eternity, as the names of the redeemed were already written in his book of life from the foundation of the world. When Jesus took on humanity, this was an addition to his divine nature, not a subtraction of his divinity. Thus, everything he taught, he taught with authority, including about creation and the flood. The Incarnation Why Did God Become Man? by Bodhi Hodge Originally published December 2010 There are two priorities we will consider. Number one, the scientific aspects of creation are important, but are secondary in importance to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as sovereign, creator, redeemer, and judge. Number two, the doctrines of creator and creation cannot ultimately be divorced from the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we showed in our previous article, Christmas and Genesis, which we recommend reading before this one. One whose birth is celebrated at Christmas was none other than the one who brought the whole universe into existence. Our Creator took on the nature of one of His creatures, a helpless infant. The reason these doctrines are even more important than creation is that the Bible provides at least two key concepts that were in operation even before the creation of the world, let alone Jesus' birth. The biblical teachings are impossible to understand without these. In Genesis 1.1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But this wasn't the first thing. In the New Testament, the book of John, chapter 1, verse 1, follows Genesis in starting with, In the beginning. The Greek New Testament copies the Septuagint translation of Genesis, but then it diverges from Genesis. The creation of the universe isn't mentioned until verse 3. In between, we are told that the person described as the Word, in the Greek the Logos, in the Hebrew Memra, was both with God as well as God himself. Verse 3 tells us that this person, the Word, was the one by whom all things were created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. This word is also called God the Son. In Hebrews 1.8, God himself addresses the Son as God. 
To back up the word was God statement in John 1 verse 1, the Son likewise has all the attributes of deity, Colossians 1 15 through verse 20, Philippians 2, and Hebrews 1 verse 3. The plurality of the Godhead is vital for understanding the biblical teaching. God is love, 1 John 4, 8, and 16. A Unitarian God, such as Islam's Allah, could not be a God of love in his nature, since by definition love requires another person to be the recipient. Allah might conceivably be able to love after he created, but that would make love contingent on creation not an intrinsic property of Allah. But with the true God of the Bible, the love between God the Father and God the Son has always existed, even before creation. Furthermore, the Bible reveals a third person who is God, the Holy Spirit. This enables an even more perfect love that includes not only individual love, but collective love. This is the sort that should occur in the family where the husband and wife love not only each other, but combine their love towards their child. As we have often taught, Genesis is the seedbed of Christian doctrine. This includes the teaching of the Trinity, one God in three persons. While the overt doctrine of the Trinity is not taught, the plurality of the Godhead is. And the New Testament provided a fuller revelation. Meanwhile, even before then, as N.T. Wright points out, in this context, it is vital for our purposes that we stress one fact. Within the most fiercely monotheistic of Jewish circles throughout our period, from the Maccabean Revolt to Bar Kokhba, there is no suggestion that monotheism or praying the Shema had anything to do with a numerical analysis of the inner being of Israel's God himself. It had everything to do with the two-pronged fight against paganism and dualism. Indeed, we find strong evidence during this period of Jewish groups and individuals who, speculating on the meaning of some difficult passages of Scripture, Daniel 7, for example, or Genesis 1, suggested that the divine being might encompass a plurality. Philo could speculate about the Logos as, effectively, a second divine being. The similitudes of Enoch might portray the Son of Man, Messiah, as an eternal divine being, but none of these are showing any awareness that they are transgressing normal Jewish monotheism. Nor are they. The oneness of Israel's God, the Creator, was never an analysis of the God's inner existence, but always a polemic against paganism and dualism. Even in the first verse of the Hebrew Bible, we see the beginnings of this doctrine. The word for God is the plural word in Hebrew for Elohim, Yet the verb created is the singular form of the Hebrew word bara, not the plural form. Later on, Genesis reveals a curious incident where God appears to the man he chose to be the father of the messianic people, Abraham, in Genesis 18 through 19. Genesis 18:1 inexplicably tells us that Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, appeared to Abraham, but what Abraham actually saw at first was three men. 18 verse 2. Yet these were evidently of such awe-inspiring appearance that Abraham bowed to them. Similarly, Mark's gospel describes an angel at Jesus' tomb as a man, and again with an awesome appearance that at first alarmed the women who were the first at the tomb. 
Later, we see that one of these men is the spokesman for the three, described as the Lord in 18 verse 13. The other two are just angels, and they are dispatched to Sodom. In chapter 18 verse 22 and on, the Lord remains with Abraham, and Abraham pleads for the city since his nephew Lot and his family were there. Yet although even ten righteous people would have been enough to spare the city, such were not to be found. Thus Lot needed to be rescued. Incidentally, this is one of many arguments against the local flood compromise. That is to say, why didn't God tell Noah to move to another part of the world that wasn't flooded, given that Lot just had to leave the cities to be destroyed? In Genesis 19.1, we see only two angels arriving at Sodom. They rescued Lot, his wife and two daughters, from the first recorded gay pride march in history, in chapter 19 verse 5. But where was the one who was one of the three men who appeared to Abraham? We see in Genesis 19.24 that the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. That is, there was a Jehovah on earth raining down fire from Jehovah in heaven pointing to two distinct persons with the divine name. And the paragraph of this passage states, And the Memra word of Yahweh caused to descend upon the peoples of Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Yahweh in heaven. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, reveals a book of life, which contains the names of all saved people, and it is stated to have been written from the foundation of the world, Revelation 17.8 states, And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Revelation 13.8 uses the same phrase and identifies the owner of this book of life, the slain lamb, who is also the word. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written down from the foundation of the world in the book of life belonging to the lamb who was slain. This lines up with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.4 who uses similar wording and states that the choosing even happened before the creation of the universe. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. But this writing presents a dilemma. How could we sinful people merit inclusion in a book belonging to the spotless Lamb of God? God created us and therefore owns us, and has the right to make the rules for us. He has set a perfect moral standard of which we fall short, Romans 3.23. He is perfectly just, so must punish moral shortcomings. Since our shortcomings offend His infinite holiness, the punishment must also be infinite. Either we must suffer such punishment or else a substitute must endure it in our place. Isaiah 53 This substitute must fulfill two conditions. Number one, he must be fully human to substitute for humanity. Hebrews 2.14-17 tells us that Jesus died for mankind, precisely because he shares their humanity. But he didn't share angelic nature, so sinning angels are out of luck. Furthermore, the prophet Isaiah foretold this coming Savior as literally the kinsman redeemer, that is to say, one who is related by blood to those he redeems. Isaiah 59.20, which uses the same Hebrew word as is used to describe Boaz in relation to Naomi in Ruth.
chapter 2, verse 20, and chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 17. This is possible only because this Savior is a physical descendant of the first Adam via Mary. See Luke 3, verse 38, and is called the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, which makes him the relative of all humans in all races or people groups who have ever existed. Thus, theistic evolution doesn't just undermine Genesis and a literal Adam, but jeopardizes this vital kinsman-redeemer concept as well. Number two, he must be fully divine to endure God's infinite wrath. Isaiah 53 verse 10, since a mere creature could not withstand it. Furthermore, in the Hebrew, Jehovah God himself said, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Isaiah 43 verse 11, so calling Jesus Savior is logically calling him Yahweh, since Yahweh is the only Savior. No wonder that the great Trinitarian Church Father Athanasius noted, those who maintained there was a time when the Son was not, that is to say, was a created being, rob God of his word, like plunderers. This required dual nature of the Redeemer fits perfectly with 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. An ideal mediator between two groups should ideally be a member of both. Thus, Jesus is such a mediator, because he is the only member of both groups, God and man. And since the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, this substitute had to die to pay for our sins. We see on this point how long-age teachings damage even the gospel and incarnation because they all undermine the sin-death causality. And as shown in the rest of this article, for a divine person to be able to die, he had to add human nature. Now let's look at John 1 verse 14. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yet this was fulfilling a long line of prophecy, Right after sin first appeared in the human race, God foretold of the coming seed of the woman who would crush the head of the tempting serpent. Genesis 3.15 This passage is called the Protevangelion, or first mention of the gospel in the Bible. It also prophesies the virginal conception of Christ. That is why he is the seed of the woman, in contrast to the usual biblical pattern of listing only fathers in genealogies. This is supported by Galatians 4.4. God sent forth his Son, coming, in the Greek word, from the woman. That this passage was foretelling a divine seed was understood by Eve herself, as shown after she gave birth to Cain, the first human who began by normal conception and birth. She actually said something obscured by modern English translations, but is clear in the Hebrew of Genesis 4 verse 1. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Thus, Eve understood that the seed would be both God and man, but she was grossly mistaken in believing that Cain was the seed in question. That is, her error was not in theology but in application. No, this future human divine seed was still in the future 
Yet Eve's understanding was backed up by about 3,300 years later by the prophet Isaiah, around 700 years before Christ. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5 in the Hebrew numbering, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. That is, he foretold a child who would be born, yet he was also divine, as shown by all these titles, not just the explicit ones. See Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7, the coming child who would be called Mighty God. A later prophet, Micah, reinforced this. Micah 5.2 is most famous for prophesying the birthplace of the Messiah, Matthew 2 verses 1 through 6. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Yet this prophecy made it clear that the one who was to be born in Bethlehem did not in fact begin there, but has been in action since eternity past. Jesus himself was most aware of his pre-existence in John chapter 8, verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. His enemies knew perfectly well that he was claiming divinity, which is why they planned to stone him. The Greek word here for I am is important because the Greek verbs already had information in the person. The Greek here means I am on its own. There are a number of these I am statements, which also relates to God's statements in Isaiah in the Hebrew. This one would have brought to mind to God's revelation of his special name to Moses in Exodus 3 verse 14. I am that I am. Because the Greek word for this, I am the being, the one. His Jewish enemies certainly understood him this way because they tried to stone him. John chapter 8 verse 59. Furthermore, Jesus contrasts Abraham's being, denoting that he came into existence at some point in the past with his own am, which is in the present tense because he just exists. It is very clear that he is claiming not only to have pre-existed Abraham, who died long before he was born, but even more, that he didn't even come into existence. The passage Philippians 2, 5-11, called Carmen Christi, or Hymn of Christ, is one of the most important for the Incarnation. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. As we have seen, Jesus already pre-existed the time when he was born. He was also God in his essential nature. Furthermore, he had no need to grasp equality with God because he already had it.
it's vital to understand that Jesus never ceased to be divine, contrary to the canonic heresy. Yes, this passage does refer to emptying, kenosis, but what does it actually say? He emptied himself by taking. That is, he didn't empty anything out of himself, such as divine attributes. Rather, he emptied himself. And he did so by taking. That is, it was a subtraction by means of adding. Adding human nature to his divine nature, not taking away anything divine. This addition was indeed an emptying, seen as a human being. Since as a human being, Jesus was subject to all the things that humans are subject to, such hunger, tiredness, and temptation. The only difference is, is that not only was he without sin, he was incapable of sin. And like all humans, he was subject also to death. Indeed, this was the whole reason he came. This is even shown in the symbolism of certain events around the time. When he was born, he was wrapped in cloth, which in the context of the time and place was burial cloth, as burial cloth was left in mangers. And almost two years later, when the wise men came, one of their gifts was myrrh, an important herb used in burial rites. However, because Jesus never lost his divinity, no one could have killed him if he hadn't laid down his own life. This is why he bowed his head first, then gave up his spirit on the cross. The usual order would be to die and muscles go limp and the head collapse. But in his divinity, he could not die. What actually happened in the kenosis is that Jesus voluntarily surrendered the independent exercise of divine powers without his Father's authority. For example, this explains why Jesus, in his humanity, did not know the day or the hour of his return, because it was the Father's prerogative. However, he could immediately switch on these powers at will, for example to know what people were thinking. But Jesus never surrendered such absolute divine attributes as his perfect goodness, truthfulness, mercy, and the like, which is why he was not only without sin, but incapable of sin. There are Book of Genesis compromisers that admit that Jesus affirmed a straightforward view of Genesis' creation and the flood, but claim that he was wrong about his divinity and his powers. Several things can be stated about these errors. First, if the claim is basically Jesus was mistaken because in the Incarnation his omniscience was masked, then this commits the canonic heresy. But let's consider that this confuses limitation and understanding. While Jesus was in his humanity, he did not know all things, but this does not entail that he was mistaken about anything he said. All human understanding is finite, but this doesn't entail that every human understanding is errant. Also, what Jesus did preach, he proclaimed with absolute authority. Matthew 24 verse 35 and chapter 28 verse 18. Because he was speaking with the full authority of God the Father, John 5.30 and 8.28 Who is always omniscient? Furthermore, God the Father during the transfiguration told the listeners, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Luke 9.35 An explicit endorsement of everything Jesus taught. So if Genesis compromisers wish to accuse Jesus of error because of His humanity, 
they must logically charge God the Father with error as well. Or else, if Jesus taught an inerrant Bible and attributed his teachings to the Father and such teaching is wrong, Jesus must be a charlatan in a hopeless muddle. Also, another point here is where do we draw the line? If Jesus was wrong with his view of Scripture, maybe he was wrong in other areas too. Where does it end? After all, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? If Jesus was wrong about earthly things, like a recent creation and a global flood, was he also wrong about a heavenly thing like John 3.16, only four verses later? If not, why not? Who decides whether he is right or wrong? We must. So we become the authority instead of Jesus. And scripture becomes a restaurant menu, where we choose only the parts that suit us, while we slide down to total unbelief. Many atheists testify that their rejection of the Bible and Christianity started with compromises on Genesis. For example, Billy Graham's former fellow evangelist, Charles Templeton, Let's also consider another excuse that doesn't blatantly fall into the canonic heresy, and it is, Jesus deliberately accommodated himself to the mistaken views of his audience. But, number one, this confuses adaptation to human finitude with accommodation to human error. The former does not entail the latter. A mother might tell her four-year-old, You grew inside my tummy. This is not false but language simplified to the child's level. Conversely, the stork brought you is an upright error. Similarly, God, the author of truth, used some simplified descriptions. For example, using the earth as a reference frame, as modern scientists do today. And anthropomorphisms, but never error. Number two, Jesus often challenged his audience so he would not have failed to point out their mistaken views on Scripture, if such they were. Number three, if Jesus acquiesced in this error, maybe he did so elsewhere as well. Who ultimately decides when Jesus is acquiescing? We must. So once again, Jesus loses his authority. And number four, Jesus did not just acquiesce to the views of his audience on the inerrancy of Scripture but was in fact reinforcing them. Let's sum up what we are talking about. Jesus pre-existed creation and never came into existence because he existed eternally. It was through him that all created things came into existence. And this entails a plurality in the Godhead, which is taught even from Genesis. And this also enables God to be a God of love. Our names have also been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb, Jesus, from the foundation of the world. As sinful creatures, this means that our sin must be punished by a substitute, who was human as we are, but divine to be our Savior. This required our Creator to add human nature to His divine nature. And Jesus never lost His divine attributes which provide authority to his teachings on the very subject.
1978, there were few resources for Christians who wanted to defend their belief in biblical creation. So at that time, Carl Wieland founded Creation Magazine, which would eventually become the most widely read creation publication in the world. To celebrate 40 years of cutting-edge creation content, Creation Ministries International collected articles from across the history of this groundbreaking publication, some with important updates, into a full-color coffee table-style book titled Defending Genesis. Some of the articles address the following. Archaeopteryx. Is it a transitional form or a true flying bird? Amazing motorized germs which show evolution is impossible? Does the Bible really teach that the earth is 6,000 years old? Jesus Christ is our Creator. What did He believe about origins? If you are new to Creation Magazine and want a collection of the best of the series, then you'll want to get a copy of Defending Genesis. Get this book at creation.com store. I am Joseph Darnell. From all of us at creation.com, thanks for listening.